Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is Episode 7-13, Bosnia and the U.S. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Bihać, a Muslim enclave in western Bosnia, is under siege from three different directions. Bosnian Croat and Bosnian Muslims sign a ceasefire agreement in February 1994. The first NATO airstrikes are used against Serb forces shelling the Muslim enclave of Garajde. Yasushi Akashi, the main UN diplomat in Bosnia, is against airstrikes and prefers talking to the Serbs. And with that, let's discuss the U.S.'s growing role in the Bosnian War. The Washington Agreement As mentioned in the previous episode, the Bosnian Muslims and the Bosnian Croats signed a ceasefire in late February 1994. The U.S. government, frustrated with the U.N.'s inability to get anything done, took the lead. From that ceasefire came the Washington Agreement in March 1994. The Washington Agreement was a full peace treaty between the governments of the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina, that is, the Bosnian Muslims, and the Croatian Republic of Herzeg Bosnia, that is, the Bosnian Croats. Signed by Bosnian PM Haris Selajic and Croatian Foreign Minister Mate Granic, the Washington Agreement established the groundwork for cooperation and peaceful coexistence between the Muslims and Croats. It also allowed the two parties to once again unite against their common enemy, the Serbs. Under this new agreement, Bosniak and Croatian territory in Bosnia and Herzegovina would become a single federation. Furthermore, the entire country would be divided into ten cantons. These cantons were individual, mostly self-governing territories. This allowed local ethnic groups to govern themselves with little federal oversight. The Contact Group Plan Encouraged by the success of the Washington Agreement, the Western nations, led by the Americans, pushed even harder to end the violence in the Balkans. The major European powers, Great Britain, Russia, France, Germany, and Italy, and the United States formed the contact group. Russia's influence with the Serbs made their participation critical. This contact group came up with a new plan in August 1994. The contact group plan was similar to the Owen Stoltenberg plan from 1993, but with a few differences. This new plan suggested dividing Bosnia up into two entities. One entity would be the Bosnia-Croat Federation from the Washington Agreement, roughly 51% of the country. The other entity would be Republika Srpska, the territory the Bosnian Serbs claimed, and about 49% of the country. The contact group used Russia to lean on Slobodan Milosevic to support the plan. While the Bosnian Serbs had accepted the Owen Stoltenberg plan the previous year, things were different now. They now controlled 70% of Bosnia and saw no reason to give up the 20% difference. The Bosnian Serbs rejected the plan, ruining another chance for peace. 
However, by rejecting the plan, they also created a rift with Slobodan Milosevic, who wanted sanctions lifted off of Serbia. Going on the offensive The United States continued to express frustration with the UN's handling of the war in Bosnia. In early September, an American delegation led by Richard Holbrook, Bill Clinton's top advisor on European affairs, met with officials from Bosnia's Muslim government. There was some speculation that the United States had decided to secretly support the Bosnian government. The U.S.'s two most recent military conflicts were in Iraq and Somalia, both Muslim countries. Perhaps the Americans wanted to show that they were not anti-Muslim. The Clinton administration also began preparing a resolution for the U.N. Security Council. This resolution called for lifting the arms embargo on Bosnia if the Serbs did not agree to a long-term peace deal. Great Britain, France, Russia, and the United Nations objected to this idea. They argued lifting the arms embargo would increase the violence and put their soldiers in harm's way. U.S. officials responded it was simply a measure to pressure the Serbs to commit to peace. It was around this time that NATO and the U.N. got more aggressive. Of course, this is relative to how passive they were before. On September 22nd, NATO attacked and destroyed a Serb tank near Sarajevo in retaliation for a Serb attack on UN personnel. The tank was also in violation of UN demands to keep heavy weapons away from the capital. A month later, UNPRO-4 launched Operation Amanda to recover a military post taken by the Serbs. Three Danish tanks defeated a single Serb tank and a Serb anti-tank fighter. Slobodan Milosevic had cut off all military aid to the Croatian and Bosnian Serbs as punishment for refusing to accept the contact group plan. Without a peace plan, Serbia remained under severe international sanctions. And, without Serbia's support, the Croatian and Bosnian Serbs had to unite to fight against their enemies. The Serbs continued to ethnically cleanse the areas they controlled. At least 9,000 Muslims were expelled from Serb-held territories in North and West Bosnia during the summer of 1994. In early October 1994, hundreds of Muslims were evicted from Banja Luka by Serb authorities. On November 17th and November 18th, the Croatian Serbs launched airstrikes against Muslim-controlled towns in Bihać. It is not clear why the Serbs took such audacious action. They had to know it would bring a response from the UN and NATO. Some believe this was an attempt to draw NATO and the UN into war, thereby forcing Milosevic to support them again. Whatever their intention, NATO responded by extending its promise of close air support to include Croatia. Then, NATO attacked an airfield in Odbina, Croatia. But the Serbs had a response of their own. They began kidnapping the poorly armed UN peacekeepers throughout the Balkans and using them as human shields. In one case, the Bosnian Serbs made several peacekeepers lie down on the airport runway in Banja Luka when they learned a NATO airstrike was forthcoming. The UN called off the airstrike. In December 1994, former President Jimmy Carter traveled to Bosnia to join in the peace talks between the Bosniaks and the Serbs. 
This was the third time that year that President Carter had acted as an international peace negotiator. In June, he and his wife Rosalind traveled to North Korea to defuse a standoff with the United States over nuclear weapons. A few months later, in September, General Raoul Cedars invited Carter to Haiti to help prevent a potential U.S. invasion. Jimmy Carter and his wife arrived in Pali, a few miles south of Sarajevo, to meet with Karadzic, the Bosnian Serb leader. Carter remained in Bosnia until early 1995, attempting to broker a lasting peace deal. He did not get that peace deal, but the Bosnian Serbs and the Bosnian Muslims did agree to a ceasefire in late December 1994. A few days later, on December 31, 1994, they signed a comprehensive four-month ceasefire. British Lieutenant General Michael Rose, the top UN commander in Bosnia, and UN Special Envoy Yasushi Akashi acted as intermediaries in the negotiations. A Four-Month Truce the purpose of the four-month ceasefire was to give all sides time to work out a long-term peace deal. But within five days, it became clear that might not happen. Out west, near the hotly contested enclave of Bihać, fighting was still intense. Croatian Serbs had teamed up with the forces of Fikret Abdić, a renegade Muslim group that opposed the Bosnian government. Since these two parties had not signed the ceasefire agreement, they continued fighting the Bosnian government forces in Bihać. Another issue straining the peace agreement were the weapons in and around Sarajevo. The Bosnian Serbs refused to negotiate with the Bosnian Muslims so long as government troops were stationed in the demilitarized zone south of Sarajevo. And then they disagreed about the division of land. The United Nations wanted the warring parties to build upon the terms established in the failed contact group plan from the previous summer. That original plan had the Serbs controlling about half of Bosnia, even though they currently controlled nearly two-thirds. This was the main point of contention. During the Carter negotiations, this sticking point was glossed over and never really got dealt with. Now that Jimmy Carter was back stateside, this issue was, once again, front and center. The Bosnian Serbs wanted to keep the land they currently occupied. The Bosnian Muslims said that was not part of the original plan. Within a week of the new year, minor sporadic fighting broke out between Muslims and Serbs. However, both sides continued to maintain the ceasefire was still in effect. On January 16, 1995, 21 artillery shells fell on Fikret Abdić's territory in Bihać, killing seven people. Three days later, another 400 shells pounded at the small enclave, further straining the shaky truce. That same day, General Michael Rose ended his tour of duty. He would be replaced by Lieutenant General Rupert Smith as UN military commander in Bosnia. Near the end of the month, Bosnian Prime Minister Harris Selajic visited the United States to press the Clinton administration to lift the arms embargo. 
He met with Vice President Al Gore and Secretary of State Warren Christopher, both of whom assured him the United States supported the Bosnian Muslims. But they could not lift the embargo. Harris Elijah then met with Republican leaders in Congress who rallied to his side. Senator Bob Dole said he was serious about lifting the arms embargo. They're not asking for American troops, he said. They have a right to self-defense. As winter turned to spring in 1995, the snow melted and the sporadic fighting intensified. All three parties, Serbs, Croats, and Muslims, had reasons to go on the offensive. The Serbs held the upper hand and felt it was only a matter of time before the UN gave up on Bosnia. When that happened, the Bosnian Serbs could wipe out the Muslims and Croats and take over the entire country. The Bosnian Muslims had the most to lose. Their very existence was at stake. When the four-month ceasefire ended, they wanted to be ready if the United States lifted the arms embargo. By this time, the Muslim Bosnian army was much better equipped. The influx of Mujahideen from other countries, their renewed alliance with Croatia, and weapons from the black market helped to improve their standing. Furthermore, the Clinton administration refused to enforce the arms embargo. While the Americans could not outright supply the Bosnians with weapons, they could turn a blind eye to black market transactions. There was also speculation that American military officials were secretly training and advising the Bosniaks. The U.S. government denied these allegations. Croatian President Franjo Tuđman was fed up with the United Nations. They had been in his country for years, yet the Serbs still controlled nearly a third of Croatia. By the end of February 1995, the ceasefire was halfway over and Croatia had made its position clear. President Franjo Tuđman wanted the UN out of Croatia so he could resume the war against the Serbs. He gave the United Nations a March 31st deadline. With the focus on Bosnia for the past three years, the Croats had managed to defy the arms embargo and strengthen their military. UN intelligence suggested Croatia had 400 tanks, 220,000 troops, and six combat helicopters. However, the UN presence in Croatia had allowed the Croatian Serbs to consolidate their holdings and fortify their positions. All of this meant that when the war resumed in Croatia, it was going to be brutal. The Bosniaks were also tired of the United Nations. President Alija Izetbegovic wrote a letter to Boutros Boutros Ghali stating he was considering asking the UN peacekeepers to withdraw from Bosnia. By the middle of March, everyone knew all hell was going to break loose when the ceasefire ended on May 1st. The Clinton administration implied its support of the Bosnian government and encouraged Germany and Austria to do the same. This fueled rumors that the U.S. was ready to lift the arms embargo. Russia countered, saying that if that happened, they would cancel sanctions on Serbia. In fact, Russia had already signed a military cooperation deal with Serbia to take effect once the sanctions were lifted. In mid-March, 
Muslim Bosnian forces began an assault on Bosnian Serb forces on Mount Majevica in northeastern Bosnia. This was a critical juncture which allowed the Muslims to cut the supply routes between Serbia and Serb-controlled Bosnia. A week later, Muslim forces attacked a Serb radio tower in the same region. On the last day of March, Croatian President Franjo Tuđman relented in his demands for UN troops to leave. Vice President Al Gore had met with Tuđman and made several promises to get him to change his mind. On May 1, 1995, the four-month truce came to an end. In Croatia, thousands of government troops and Croatian Serbs began fighting over control of a critical highway. Croatian MiG fighters launched airstrikes against Serbian targets. The Serbs began shelling a village in eastern Bosnia. And in Sarajevo, explosions rocked the city and sniper alleys sprung back to life. The crack of sniper shots rang out all day long. The 1995 Bosnian-Serb Offensive So far, every effort to bring a long-standing peace to Bosnia had failed. International efforts to isolate the Bosnian Serbs had failed. The contact group plan had failed. And Jimmy Carter's ceasefire had failed. And now, the Serbs were ready to finish what they had started, and they had every reason to be confident. Despite recent improvements in the Croatian and Muslim forces, the Serbs still held a considerable advantage. They had a commanding position with control of over 70% of Bosnia. The UN and the international community was weak and impotent. And even though the United States opposed them, they knew the Americans would never commit ground troops to Bosnia. But time was of the essence. Without Milosevic's support, the arms embargo was hurting the Bosnian Serbs as well. They had to end this war by the end of 1995, and they formulated a plan to do so. First, they would take the three remaining Muslim enclaves in the east, Srebrenica, Jepa, and Garajde. Then, they'd go after Bihać, the largest Muslim enclave in the west. Their new alliance with the Croatian Serbs would help facilitate that. Once that was done, they could move on to take the final piece and the crown jewel of their plan, Sarajevo. Srebrenica, Jepa, and Garajde were UN-designated safe areas, meaning fighting was prohibited in them. But none of that mattered to the Bosnian Serbs. With the ceasefire over, the Serbs put their plan into action. They immediately resumed shelling Sarajevo. And when the UN called for NATO airstrikes, the Serbs were ready. They kidnapped 400 UN peacekeepers, many of them French, and held them hostage until the UN agreed to back down. And of course, the UN backed down. Later that month, the Serbs kidnapped 300 British soldiers. British Prime Minister John Major and American President Bill Clinton promised military action if any of them were harmed. The Serbs wanted additional promises from NATO to end the airstrikes. They did not get those promises, but the Serbs weren't crazy enough to kill British hostages. NATO bombed the Serbs in Pale for not moving their heavy weapons. The Serbs responded by kidnapping 145 UN troops. Rather than use the peacekeepers as bargaining chips, 
This time, the Serbs used them as human shields and tied them up at strategic locations. The Bosnian Serbs, a rebel force using cast-off weapons from Serbia and the former Yugoslavia, had effectively thwarted the most powerful military alliance in the world. The Serbs followed this up by unleashing a devastating artillery barrage on Tuzla, killing 71 civilians, including several teenagers at a local cafe. But the Muslims were also active. In mid-June, 15,000 Bosniak troops, using heavy artillery, began a campaign to punch through the Serb lines encircling Sarajevo. The Bosnian government, tired of waiting for the world to save them, was ready to risk it all to save their beleaguered capital. After two days of heavy fighting, the Bosnian Muslims began pushing the Serbs back from Sarajevo. As they fell back, the Serbs responded by shelling civilian buildings and hospitals. The United Nations called for peace and begged the Bosniaks to resume negotiations. President Alija Izetbegovic's response was especially terse. We are not paying much attention to that, he said. In our situation, we have no obligation to look at what the world is thinking, the world that has done nothing for Sarajevo. The Bosnian Serbs continued to fall back as the Muslims and their Croat allies pushed them into the hills surrounding Sarajevo. The Serbs were reeling, suffering from a shortage of fuel and supplies. This Bosniak offensive reignited rumors they had received American training and support. The maneuvers used in this offensive were classic American pincer moves. The U.S. government denied these allegations. Despite the Bosniak success, life in Sarajevo was still dangerous and precarious. Serbian artillery still targeted civilian buildings. In late June, the Serbs shelled a television station and an apartment building, killing five people and injuring dozens more. In addition to fighting in the hills surrounding Sarajevo, there was also fighting within Sarajevo. Bosniaks and Serbs fought a furious artillery duel in West Sarajevo, a Serb stronghold. Meanwhile, the UN was trying to prove its relevance. The UN Security Council proposed a rapid reaction force to protect its peacekeepers in Sarajevo. Neither the Bosniaks nor the Serbs cared for this new idea. The Serbs, who were losing their grip on the capital, did not want more foreign troops in Bosnia. And the Bosniaks were simply fed up with the United Nations. The relationship between them had gotten so bad, Bosnia's Muslim leaders refused to speak with Yasushi Akashi, the top UN diplomat in Bosnia. We do not speak with Mr. Akashi anymore, said Hasan Mutarovic, a Bosnian government minister. Akashi is dead to us. We won't have anything more to do with him. On July 5th, the first UN reinforcements attempted to enter Sarajevo but were blocked by Bosnian Croats. The Croats were just as fed up with the UN as their Bosniak allies and refused to let more UN peacekeepers in unless their mission was clearly defined. France, who had lost over 40 soldiers so far in Bosnia, did not like the Muslim offensive in Sarajevo. France publicly accused the United States of siding with the Bosniaks and providing them with weapons and training. The U.S. government denied these allegations. Desperation 
By early July 1995, the Bosnian Serbs were starting to get desperate. Their big plan to win the war by the end of 1995 was not looking so good. The Bosnian government's offensive in Sarajevo had rocked the Serbs' confidence. When they were fighting lightly armed Bosniaks or terrorizing civilians, the Bosnian Serbs had done extremely well. The UN embargo had tilted the conflict in their favor, allowing the Serbs to capture nearly two-thirds of the country. But somehow the Bosnian Muslims had gotten access to heavy weapons. And now, things weren't looking so rosy for the Serbs. The Bosnian Serbs were not completely helpless. Even though Milosevic stopped supporting them, they still received illegal weapons and supplies from Serbia. But Serbia was also under an arms embargo and international sanctions. This made weapon smuggling much more expensive and difficult. Slobodan Milosevic was furious with his former protege, Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic. Had Radovan Karadzic accepted the contact group plan, the war would be over, sanctions would be lifted, and Milosevic would be hailed as a peacemaker. Instead, the entire world viewed the Serbs as pariahs and responsible for the war. And there were also whispers of Milosevic being charged as a war criminal. Bosnian Serbs, while living in a much safer environment than the Bosnian Muslims, were still suffering. Their government, the renegade Republika Srpska, was dysfunctional and chaotic. Thousands of Serbs had fled Muslim and Croat enclaves for Serb-controlled regions. While some did take up residence in Muslim homes that had been abandoned or confiscated, many more lived in refugee camps. And most devastating of all for the Serbs, their young men were drafted into the Bosnian Serb military to fight the Muslims and Croats. The Bosnian Serbs were growing anxious. They wanted 1995 to be the last year of the war. So they pushed forward with their plan to take the three Muslim enclaves in the east. On July 6, they began shelling Srebrenica, a UN safe area about 50 miles northeast of Sarajevo. None of the 450 Dutch soldiers protecting Srebrenica were injured in this initial attack, but a few civilians were killed. The shelling of Srebrenica intensified over the next three days. 300 rounds of artillery pounded Srebrenica on July 8th alone. And then, the Bosnian Serb infantry moved in. They captured a nearby UN outpost and took the Dutch soldiers there hostage. This gave them control of the hills overlooking the enclave. The next day, the Serbs overran another four UN outposts near Srebrenica, capturing several more Dutch peacekeepers. Now, the Serbs held over 30 Dutch soldiers captive and were less than a mile from Srebrenica. The United Nations issued warnings to Radovan Karadzic, who ignored them all. Bosnian President Alija Izetbegovic wrote to British PM John Major warning of the danger Srebrenica faced. Bosnian Prime Minister Haris Selajic wrote to NATO asking them to protect Srebrenica. Bosnian Foreign Minister Mohamed Sakrebi asked for an emergency UN Security Council meeting to discuss Srebrenica. The overwhelming firepower of NATO could have stopped the Serbs in their tracks. 
and the United Nations did consider calling in NATO airstrikes. But when the Serbs threatened to kill the Dutch hostages, they decided not to. On July 11, 1995, Srebrenica fell to the Serbs. In the next episode, we will discuss the Srebrenica massacre. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season one of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 1-13. This will be the final episode of this season. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Feuding within the Banu Tamim of Khorasan leads to the death of one of their most powerful members, Bukir ibn Wishah. Bukir's family is angry and seeking revenge against his killer, Bahir ibn Warqa. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf has managed to defeat most of the rebellious and Khawadish activity in Iraq and Persia. For instance, Muhalab has recently destroyed the Azalika Khawadij in southern Persia. While another Umayyad army put down the revolt of a rebellious governor named Mutarrif in central Persia. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf appoints Muhalab as governor of Khorasan and Ubaidullah ibn Abi Bakr as governor of Sijistan. Both men know they will be judged on how well they can continue to expand the Umayyad domains. And with that, let's discuss Ubaidullah ibn Abi Bakr in Sijistan. Ubaidullah ibn Abi Bakr led an expedition into Zabulistan in 79 AH. Zabulistan covers much of southern Afghanistan from Kabul to Kandahar. It borders right along modern Pakistan and its capital then, as it is now, was Kabul. The people within this region of Zabulistan followed a variety of religions that mixed aspects of Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, and Hinduism, and the region was ruled by a dynastic family called Zunbil. 
The Zunbils had resisted the early Muslim incursions into Zabulistan, but eventually they agreed to pay the Arabs tribute in the form of kharaj, and kharaj is land taxes. However, the Zunbils had missed several payments of late, and ultimately they reneged on their earlier deal with the Umayyads. Therefore, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf ordered Ubaidullah ibn Abi Bakr to launch a punitive campaign against the Zunbils. This campaign was supposed to be punishment for them reneging on the deal, and Hajjaj ibn Yusuf specifically ordered Ubaidullah ibn Abi Bakr to destroy the Zunbils' fortresses, take captives from their people, and to plunder their lands. Now, in the early stages of this campaign, Things were going pretty well, at least for the, for the Muslims. Ubaidullah's army was made up of men from both Kufa and Basra, and they penetrated deep into Zunbil territory, taking cattle and destroying the Zunbil castles, just like Hajjaj ibn Yusuf wanted. The Zunbils did fight back, but they kept having to retreat as the Umayyad army closed in on their summer capital, which is near the modern city of Ghazni in Afghanistan. However, the Umayyad fortunes changed when they were about 72 miles from the capital. Now they were fighting in the lower mountainous areas of Afghanistan, a very hilly area, very actually more of a mountainous area that allowed the Zunbils to launch ambushes and surprise attacks from the many crevices and ravines and hidden areas within this region. The Umayyads began to suffer heavy losses and they were prevented from getting any closer to the summer capital. It got to the point where Ubaidullah ibn Abi Bakr wanted to offer a truce and pay the Zunbils for safe passage out of that region. However, his lieutenant, an older man, an older soldier, he rejected this idea and, advi and advised against it. The interesting thing is, this same lieutenant who didn't want Ubaidullah to try to make a truce with the Zunbils, this same lieutenant before this situation had advised Ubaidullah to withdraw before they got too deep into the Zunbil territory. This lieutenant had advised Ubaidullah that they had taken enough plunder for now and that they should go, they should go back. But the fact is that Ubaidullah wanted to take more cities, he wanted to break the Zunbils, and he overextended his army, and now he was stuck in hostile territory. But now that things were looking like they were going to take a turn for the worse, the lieutenant, who, by the way, as I mentioned, was an old man, he seemed to change his tune. He said that he was running out of opportunities to die in the path of Allah, and this may have been the best opportunity he had. So he struck up a speech and, and spoke some very inspiring words, and a few men did join him, and they rode off into battle against the Zunbils, which, is, which by the way, was against Ubaidullah's orders. He did not want them to do this, but the old lieutenant, he led the few men who he could convince to go with him, led them into battle against the Zunbils, and of course, they were quickly killed. <laughs> 